Welcome, everybody, to the first time's the charm. I am your host, Ben, alongside Matt. Matt, say hi. How you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well myself. I'm doing pretty super swell right now. So what we have here, everybody is the second aspect of fourth times the charm that we're going to be showing off to you all and that is our previous podcast attempts because in spite of the fact that we never got any of these off the ground a lot of these we've listened back to and they actually are legitimately quality shows and they do still align with the general nature of first time of fourth times the charm that's right because our first three attempts were in line with the same kind of knowledge and information that we're going to be sharing with you across fourth times the charm these are shows that could potentially come back who knows exactly basically this whole podcast is an excuse for us to do whatever we want which feels like the best way to podcast so everybody on today's episode of first times the charm we are going to introduce to you john carpenter's apocalypse trilogy what i would have to say is our cinematic magnum opus for podcasting. Wouldn't you agree, Matt? It, there's only one fault in it, it's your, in your opinion of Prince of Darkness. But irregardless, the Apocalypse Trilogy is probably one of the best, most concise usage of the Lovecraftian horror put to film, at least at, by that time. There are some modern films that surpass them, but I think in their essence, they are three of the best horror movies, two of the best, one might be okay, and it's worth the depth. And I think I think I agree with you, Ben. We did a beautiful job dissecting the, those films. This total series is going to go over The Thing, John Carpenter, arguably his most famous movie, Prince of Darkness, Definitely. and then finally, In the Mouth of Madness. Oh. A, well, uh, hey, we can't spoil everything, Matt, but if if you like john carpenter's other movies Mm -hmm. i think you have one more to look out for if you can love the thing and halloween but also love escape from new york in the mouth of madness is just the perfect culminations of both of the greatest things about john carpenter and so now we are going to kick off the john carpenter apocalypse trilogy with a two-parter going into all things the thing are you ready to dive into the past matt i'm ready to do a cannonball, a backflip, and turn into a half-man, half-spider creature with fantastic practical effects. All right. We'll do it on Rob Bottin. Three. Yeah, this one was a Rob. Two. One. Rob, Rob Bottin. Like the most disappointing son of a family, it's episode two of Ben and Matt's Festival of Findings, your locally grown source of the oddest, most obscure, most underappreciated, and best forgotten video games, movies, and media of yore. My name is Ben Tucker, and I am accompanied by the meatiest man on the planet, Matt, who will be escorting us through the mind of one John Carpenter. Matt, how you doing? 
I'm doing good, Ben. How are you? How are you feeling? I'm doing quite swell, doing quite jolly, ready for my uh, mood to take a deep dive as we explore some of John Carpenter's uh, more notably depressing films. I wouldn't say they're depressing. I would say they're indicative of problems with we, that, that are with humanity and things that he thinks will be the failings of us that are represented in different parts of our society. So it's a to me, it's a pretty picture. Maybe they're more apocalyptic. Ooh, ooh, ooh. It's the it's because it's the apocalypse trilogy, and Ben is cute. Yes, this um, is the apocalypse trilogy. And yep. uh, Matt, you are quite a maestro of uh, horror. And yeah, uh, I like I like scary to, movies. Yeah, you're you're gonna help escort us through. Uh, what, what what are some of your favorite horror movies? Where does John Carpenter rank in terms of movie maestros in the horror realm right, for I'll, you? I'll give you... I, I won't go by director because then I'll look like an idiot. But I will I will give you my top five movies of all time. Go for it. And I'll, I'll start with number five, which is going to be Freddy's Dead. Perfect. It's a great movie. It's fun. It's kind of scary at parts, but it has some of the best lines in it. Then we're going to go with um, Cube. Mm. I have a deep, passionate love for that film. Does Cube qualify as like horror? Technically? I mean, it's gory. It's thrilling. It's it's as much horror. I mean, do you consider The Thing a horror movie or like a thriller? I'd say it's horror. I'd say it incorporates a lot of horror elements and horror style. It's absolutely a horror. Yeah, but I think so does cube just the villains just the the walls it's a it's a it's a movie where the environment is the victim kind of like a like portions of the revenant are a horror movie when he's going through the jungle or not the jungle the forest in the middle of winter number three the The revenant um (laughs) number three would be um hellraiser the first one uh i thought it was great it's a good introduction perfect Oh, eat a dick. And then I think the I think number two this is hard. I'm gonna publicly claim this on the internet, which means it's it's true forever the and notebook? my word is binding. Oh god. You know, I've never actually watched the notebook all the way through. Really? Um yeah, just never never made it. Number two. Number two of all time. I think it's uh I think it's Dream Warriors. Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream wow, Warriors. Two two Freddy films. He was seminal. I mean, my first, the first movie I ever saw was Nightmare on Elm Street. It's the first movie I remember seeing. And then my second memory is of some like weird movie with knights where they're all different colors. And then it's the tunnel scene from Willy Wonka. And then I watched Willy Wonka like 50 times. What a trippy childhood in movie theater. No, these were all in like my like living room. All right. What's great. What's number one? Number one is in the mouth of madness. All right, I can and it's it. and there's a very specific story as to why, but I'll save that for the future. Mm. Oh, ho, ho, ho. oh, so <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. That's right. So this is going to be a very deep dive into uh, three of John Carpenter's films: uh, 1982's <laughs> The Thing, 1987's Prince of Darkness, and 1994's uh, In the Mouth of Madness. So, now, Ben, have you seen all of these? I have yet 
I've seen The Thing. I grew up watching okay. The Thing. Good, uh, good. The other two films I have not seen before, so I'm looking forward to taking a deep Ooh, dive into them and and uh, sharing a virgin's perspective on these films. Yeah, so do, do you have any other personal connection to Carpenter? So I, I kind of explained my top horror movies. What what inspires you about the horror genre? Because don't, don't undersell yourself, Ben. You watch your share of horror movies. Yes. And then you watch your... You have very particular tastes that I feel like many in the audience might be able to appeal to. So, like, what are your top five? Give me your directors. Give me your... I mean, for show me... Show me your wares. For me, I don't necessarily go into top fives or, or stuff like that. But for me, I'm a very strong proponent of uh, ambiance and tension as opposed to jump scares. Um, really enjoy movies like Cube, which I wouldn't say is horror uh, necessarily as much as more of a thriller. But movies like The Thing are so extremely well done. Uh, recently, a movie that really shocked me with how good it was and how effective it was as a horror movie, and you may disagree with me on this, I don't even know if you saw mm. it, was Annabelle 2. Yeah, I did not I did not get a chance. I didn't have faith, I'm going to be the honest. The first Annabelle movie was hilariously terrible, but oh, really? the sequel was really really quality um wow. yeah it's extremely hard in my opinion to have a truly mm-hmm. scary horror movie in today's day and age yeah it is really difficult to actually scare people there's so much terrible horrifying things going around every day yeah exactly you get sort of numb to it and in most cases mm-hmm. i feel like concepts are much scarier than the execution if you look at the paranormal activity movies the first paranormal yeah. activity is an amazing first half of a horror movie and then it just ends it's also really boring yeah i'm gonna be honest i'm throwing that out there the first paranormal activity movie is boring it's a slog to get through that film especially the second time yeah if you're prepped for it it is a massive slog which just seems like somebody's cat is following them around yeah it's it is a it is a trudge but Let's let's so that's your kind of section of uh, movies. Do you have anything else you want to say on that subject, Ben? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I'm well aware of all of John Carpenter's uh, more notable films like Halloween. Okay. Uh, yeah, for we'll example. get to that, and we're we're gonna get into that. We're gonna slip right on in. So uh, I'm going to give you a brief overview of the actual trilogy and some of the things that John Carpenter said about it. The trilogy was a set of movies that 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 led to John Carpenter to a lot of like very deep points in his life and his throughout his career. The thing showed up right after he was very successful. It was his first major studio movie. He had uh, he had just proven himself in the proven himself in the box office, so they were trusting him. And that came out in 1982, and it was a it was a it was a critical they they had very strong opinions but we'll get to that 
Um, Prince of Darkness in 1987 was a time in his life where he took back control. Uh, it was one of the first movies that he wrote, direct, directed, produced, and did the music for, um, which was a thing that he used to do for a while because he's a control freak. And then In the Mouth of Madness was the only good movie he made in the 90s. Unless you think Escape from L.A. is good, but that's debatable. That is debatable. Yeah. And so all of these movies, this trilogy that it's become known as, at least in the horror community, um, it came about because of the interwoven themes between it. But what really solidified it and made it really notable was when John Carpenter addressed it in a Wall Street Journal interview where he said, all three of those movies are in one way or another about the end of things about the end of everything the world we know but in different ways each of those things is kind of an apocalyptic kind of movie but a very different take on it this is john carpenter discussing the idea of the apocalypse trilogy it's really what cemented his perspective on it was in this interview and it kind of made the interwoven arguments that exist about the movies and that I'll address um, exist. So uh, I think we're going to jump into it. But Ben, what do you think about this as a trilogy? I know you haven't seen all the movies yet, but what's the what's the feeling you get? What are you expecting from the other two movies based on The Thing? If these movies are anything like The Thing, I'm expecting that there's going to be some sort of insurmountable foe which comes from a concept that most people hold extremely dear and close to themselves, which ends up being flipped on its head, rendering everyone inconsolable, and pretty much everyone ends up dead by the end. You know, you're not wrong. Okay. <laughs> uh, that does, I think that does happen in every movie. All right. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm just going to break down the basic premise of The Thing and we'll move forward. Uh, the Thing came out in 1982. It's about a crew of Ant- uh, Antarctica finds a neighboring camp destroyed and its crew dead. Whenever, whatever killed them is nowhere to be found unless it's hidden in plain sight. And then uh, written on the box of the DVD, uh, the, or the original VHS, I guess, is The Ultimate and Alien Terror. Yeah, the, the original advertisements, the uh, studio added in The Ultimate and Alien Terror because this came out pretty soon after in the midst of alien fever Um, oh yeah oh yeah weeks after et came out literally within the same box office well that's well that's et but that but this situation was talking about the actual movie alien they were trying to cash out some of that popularity et the movie as we'll probably get into in my opinion Mm -hmm. was one of the leading causes for why this movie did not perform as well critically or oh, yeah. public wise oh yeah that's a we'll get into that in a little bit um but i'm gonna i'm gonna read over the next ones as a little bit of a teaser for the future um the next movie was prince of darkness which is about a research team finds a mysterious cylinder in a deserted church if opened it could mean the end of the world and ben i want you to read as dramatically as you possibly can the advertising text that was on the uh, original poster okay <clears throat> Before man walked to the earth, it slept for centuries. It is evil. It is real. It is awakening. How is that? Oh, bravo. Bravo, Ben. Top of the morning. I told you. 
This is why you'd be the greatest indie wrestling referee of all time. Well, that's what demons sound like in reality. You know, they sound like people bring... who play with Irishmen who play with the Lego. You'd bring it to the future, Ben. You'd you'd bring back the tall Jewish man sounding like you're from Ireland gimmick. <laughs> you you'd really nail it. You you'd you'd really hit it with the crowd. And then seven years after. Uh, Prince of Darkness was 1994's In the Mouth of Madness. Ooh, my absolute favorite film. I had an incredible experience getting to see this film for the first time. Which we are not going to talk about today. Because know, this is the thing. Just... But give us a teaser for it. What's it about? The So In the Mouth of Madness is a very Lovecraftian movie. Like aggressively. I'll say that of the all of them. But the basic premises. An insurance investigator begins discovering that the impact a horror writer's books have on his fans is more than inspirational. And Ben, can you please dramatically read for me the flavor text? Lived any good books lately? Yeah. That, I love that. I'm sorry, I was, I was taking a moment to appreciate that line there. That's incredible. Um... Yeah, so it's, it's a really good... We'll get to that one. That's the my favorite. Um, may, so the, some, of the, some of the big themes that exist between all three of these movies and some of the main themes of each of them, which make up kind of a dissectable apocalypse trilogy. Um, there's a line from In the Mouth of Madness that I'm going to read here that I think sums up kind of a feeling that you get from all of them. And Ben, I think it actually is pretty similar to what you said earlier when in your prediction. Every species can smell its own extinction. The last one left won't have a pretty time of it. In 10 years, maybe less, the human race will just be a bedtime story for their children. A myth. Nothing more. That quote, I think, really resonates kind of the feeling you get from the inevitability of all three of these movies moving forward. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you you definitely see that with uh, the thing I'd have to say. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm feeling you. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I'm digging it. I'm digging it. I'm like a, like a little, little chubby six year old, a crispy cream. Each movie, Rawr. each movie is about I'm so um, hungry. the apocalypse. <laughs> oh, they're like little each, balls of cotton in my mouth. Mm. Each movie is about the apocalypse <laughs> and it's apocalypse based on a, dissecting a different part of our culture and of and our society so the first movie and this is based on an argument that was uh in an article that we'll put in the description um they talk about how um the the thing and i agree with them is that is the destruction of self so it's about the destruction of human communication and ex- the movie exemplifies the worst things about each of us and there's a good quote from the movie that is uh, that Ben should read because he's our dramatic reader for the rest of the evening. Oh, Jesus Christ. As if, be as if no one listened to this to begin with. Oh, calm your breasts. Mm, double D's. Um, the destruction of self. If I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know if it was really me? That's some ship of Theseus type pondering right there yeah and that comes from childs one of the most aggressive characters in the movie 
um, who is actually probably the smartest character about the whole situation at, at certain times. Um, but that shows that the, the movie has like these like destructions of the, the connectivity between people that despite like how intelligent they're supposed to be, they end up destroying themselves and it shows the destruction of humanity because this creature would literally devour humanity in like a week. Um, and the next movie uh, follows with the theme of the destruction of religion. And Ben, as a crazy old priest, read the lines. While order does exist in the universe, it is not at all what we had in mind. Oh, Stop. oh my goodness, little boy, you're quite good. Yes. Oh, geez. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> Catholic Church does not endorse this podcast, Ben. Don't don't turn this into some like, like pleasure mu- pleasure MSR. M- oh damn, what's it called? Uh, ASMR. Yeah, ASMR for priests. Ha ha. Ben, Ben, no, stop, stop. And no. finally, this is-, is the destruction of reality from in the mouth of madness. Yes, which is reality's not what it used to be, and that definitely mm-hmm. I think uh, applies to the thing. Yeah, it does too. Uh, but in, in the, each movie gets progressively more intense with the themes and more overt. I will say the like they go they 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 happened in order of subtlety, um, and budget. Eh, well, <laughs> if the I think if the thing is the curve. most subtle, then then it's got to really be hitting you on the head with it by the third one. It's it's right in your face. But so this podcast, since we're starting here. We have to go film by film, and each film deserves its own attention. Ben needs to see them. I want to rewatch them because I love them. And this is my excuse to talk about them a lot. Uh, so let's jump into the, the basic films. But before we can do that, we need to know who made them. So some of us know the basic information about John Carpenter, but some of our listeners out there, the many thousands of you, don't know who John Howard Carpenter Harp who John Howard Carpenter is. Good, good he job. Was, fuck you. Hey. He was born January 16th, 1948, and he's currently 70 years old. His, uh, his life began as the son of a PhD uh, in music, who then moved to the middle of nowhere in Kentucky, where he learned to begin to play violin at eight years old. And was called the Yankee by all of his schoolmates, and then fell in love with horror movies. Uh, but then he became a very, sel- very selfish, intense, domineering man, who was genuinely, actually, kind of feared. Tell, tell me People, how you really feel. Well, it, it's true. It's true. He's. It, it's common. Like you can listen to Kurt Russell talk about him. He's a. He's a domineering scary man because he's a force of nature the one thing i've noticed about him is that for the past 30 years he's been perpetually 80 yeah he's he's look he's kind of like uh he's one one of those people who looks like they're like 70 by the time they're 30 and then just kind of slowly doesn't age like sam elliott sam elliott has looked the same since like 1995 to now and he's aged like 25 years. It's incredible. And the guy, my guy looks exactly the same. I, I tell, he's still kicking. I, I tell you who's aged extremely well is me. I look fantastic. You're doing all right. But Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves is like 
perfection. He's aged like gold. Well, he's an alien, so that's cheating. Well, he's yeah, he's an immortal, Ben. There's a difference. So, Matt, um, so Matt, I'm going to ask you a question here, and I'm going to see if you can answer it. Okay. Tickle me. Why did John Carpenter get in the business? What type of movies did John want to make? I bet you well, don't know. You know, I actually have a quote from John Carpenter. Oh, my God. What really, really inspired him was Westerns, because this was in the, like, 50s when he was first watching movies. And there's a quote that says, I got into the business to make Westerns. Um, and then he got into the business and realized that no one was making Westerns anymore and that Westerns weren't a thing. So he started to actually incorporate Western themes into his movies, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And actually, later in his career, in the 90s, he made a movie called Vampires, which is literally a vampire western with a bunch of gore in it. Yeah. Uh, but one of, his, one of his most inspirational directors, one of the people that really gave him the most um, guidance, I mean, not necessarily guidance, but he stole from the most, honestly, that he got the most inspiration from, was Howard Hawks. Uh, he did the original um, The Things from Outer Space, the 1952 version of this movie. Um, and he, and in a quote from John Carpenter from the Masters of Cinema uh, documentary, he says, I've stolen from him as many times as I possibly can. Yeah, and, and that documentary which you sent me is actually extremely effective, and I recommend that yeah. anyone who's listening check this out. Uh, you notice... There's a Wes Craven one, and it's really good, too. You, you notice that there's a lot of shot-for-shot examples of John mm-hmm. Carpenter directly taking from Howard Hawks, which honestly I think is super interesting when you look at the thing and you would think that John would have maybe wanted to preserve more of Howard's original vision, but he actually took and really made it his own. His own. Yeah, he 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 had a sense of doing it right. And I think he felt that the movie that was made before would have been better with those themes. But he still had the, like, scary monsters. But we'll kind of get into that where the um, special effects director kind of, like, came up with the ideas for what the creature was going to be like. The he kind of gave it the inspiration. The in the universe. Yeah, that guy. That guy That guy fucks. That dude is, like, legit. But back to John Carpenter. Um, so Right so before it- this movie came out, he he went to film school. And he got into the best filmed program in the United States um, at USC, at the University of South Carolina, which was booming for film. (laughs) What, Ben? University of Southern California. (laughs) That's South Carolina. South Carolina. That's what I said. Nothing good has ever come out of South Carolina. Even their barbecue down there sucks. Come on. Oh, die in a hole. South Carolina has delicious barbecue. Kansas City Anyway, so he graduated from the University of Southern California. And well, no, he went to the University of Southern... I thought it was Cal- Carolina, I swear. No, he went to USC. USC is the University of Southern California. It's the most There's famous... There's two USCs. Matt, just here. We'll take a 30-second break here, and we'll <laughs> let you look up which school he went to. Okay? Just... Go on, right now. We'll wait. Have you found it yet? Uh, it yeah, fuck you. Okay, yeah. So he went to the University of Southern California. And from yeah, there... Yeah, so... so <laughs> 
John Carpenter really wanted to make films, and so he decided that he needed to go to the best film school in the, in the nation, and he went to USC. There he began making films and practicing his film art, and he met a lot of the people that he would end up working with in the future. On his first student film, though, called The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, where he incorporated all that love of uh, westerns and his really Howard Hawks uh, inspirations, there's a lot of direct Howard Hawks inspirations in that movie as well, it actually won him an Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film on his first student film in college. How does that, what do you think about that, Ben? Isn't that incredible? Well, it's okay. All right. Then in 1974, he made Dark Star, which is like the real beginnings of uh, John Carpenter and his ability to make really good films with really small budgets. You say really good, Uh, but in that documentary, they pillory Dark Star. They're like, yeah, it was trash, but you know, he didn't know any better. It's it's trash, but it's it's good trash. It's because you know, like a thirty, like a twenty-two year old made it, and it's entertaining. At least I think it is. Um, but then his first real successful entertaining film for the large audience was Assault on Precinct Thirteen in nineteen seventy six. Ben, have you seen this movie or have you seen the remake? I no, I've seen Assault on Precinct Thirteen. What do you think of it? I like it. I dig it. Yeah, it's really good. It's really it's really fun. It has a lot of really good action. It just showed really who John Carpenter was to a lot of people. But then that all changed in 1978. That's right. When he comes out with his most famous movie named after a very famous holiday. That's right. John Carpenter's Thanksgiving. Damn, what a movie. Yeah. And then what he came out with thing. Halloween too, which yeah. that did okay. You know, Halloween... I will say, out of all the horror movies I watch from that classic era, I think Halloween has aged by far the worst out of all of them because it was such a trendsetter that it's the mm-hmm. it's the Seinfeld isn't funny syndrome of I guess of just everything in that movie has become so tropey that watching it well, back it's hard to get so invested. Yeah, well, it. it inspired all the tropes. It's where all the right. tropes come from. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the that's the whole Seinfeld isn't funny thing. Where Seinfeld yeah. was funny, but then it became used so much Comedy. that now when you watch back, it's blah 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 blah. Yeah. Anyway, so that was Halloween. Uh, yep. And, he'd and then follow... he made Escape. Yeah. He followed it up with the Escape from New York, launching Kurt Russell into the stratosphere. Um, Escape from New York is an incredible movie. Have you seen it, Ben? Oh yeah, I love Escape from New York. Yeah. Uh, and then he came out with The Fog in 1980, his next big foyer into uh, horror. It was a really good low-budget, very similar horror tactics that he used in The Thing. Here's the, um, the age-old question, Matt. Yes. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer The Fog or do you prefer The Mist? I, I like the fog for the classic nature of it and it has some of the best kill like some like really funny horror moments in it at least to me like really tropey really entertaining so I'm a huge John Carpenter fan I don't know but The Mist has that incredible ending that really kind of like ties the bow of that film together in a really impactful way in my memory so I think I gotta say The Mist oh man maybe I don't know they're kind of tied they're very similar all I know Mist, Fog I'm gonna have a hard time seeing either way yep um, 
John Carpenter had a lot of notoriety and impact at this point in his career. He was really popular. He was about to get a big budget movie called The Thing. Um, and in 1982, one of the most seminal horror films in our culture today was released. Um, so, Ben, what did you think about this movie? What does this movie ma- like invoke in you? What does it make you feel? How, what do, you, how, do you like it? Do you hate it? Wait, are... Wait, are... What were we talking? I jumped about? ahead. No, you no, you said we're talking about the most seminal horror film of 1982. I didn't know we were talking about Basket Case. I haven't even seen that movie. I haven't seen Basket Case. <laughs> Are you missing out? No, the the thing is an excellent movie. It's supremely well done. It doesn't rely on stupid shock horror. The gore and the effects hold up better than just about any other movie. I've seen Mm -hmm. they're so well done the tension is palpable and my favorite thing is it's one of the select few horror movies where the characters are not stupid they're not stupid okay whoa uh, hold on they're (laughs) they're pretty dumb they're stupid within reason though they're stupid like regular people would be stupid I firmly believe so okay because In, in a situation where you're being stalked by a creature the best way to keep everyone safe is just to put everyone in the same room and make sure no one is ever alone. And you know what they do? They let each other go off on, on their own super often. And then when the guy comes back like, I'm a human. They're like, yeah, you're a human. You're good. Until they, you know, stab their blood with a hot wire. I feel like I think they're the really vast, dumb. I feel like the vast majority of it they approach it pretty sensibly, particularly in the beginning, where at a certain point they're boned, you know. I guess. Yeah. And when they figure out, oh wow, this alien's gonna try and kill us, they don't go, Oh, let's try and preserve it for science. It's no, we're just gonna kill it. And they try and kill it. But it's I, just that I, will, I do appreciate that. It's I appreciate that the thing itself is such a powerful villain and antagonist. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot like Freddy Krueger in that yeah. there's only so many things that humans hold so close to them or that they can't avoid. Like, you can't avoid going to sleep, which is what makes Freddy Krueger so freaking great. Mm-hmm. He's inevitable. Or, yes. Or there needs to be an inherent trust between people or society mm-hmm. falls apart. And the thing destroys that trust because even when you think you can trust somebody, it's like, oh, I didn't see you for five minutes. Where'd you go? Now you can't trust them again. It's so amazing. And by the time they they finally figure out a way to make it work, it effectively is too late. Yeah, that's my favorite part about this film is that aspect right there. It it encapsulates you in this, this tension, this anxiety, this unknown, this paranoia. That's why the ending is the way it is. It's meant to make you feel like the rest of the movie did. It doesn't answer all your questions. You discover things the same time the characters do. To be fair, so you only, it answers, only know what they do. I mean, to be fair, it answers all but one question, pretty much. But it does, but it does it in a very like not here's all the answers way. Like it goes by it as the characters would learn. Like you don't know who's. Like, the, the person's infected from the first minute of the movie. And they do some incredible tricks to keep you unaware of who it is. And it's incredible. And it just creates this this confusion 
And even when you do know all the answers, do you know who won? Unless right. you read the shitty graphic novel that came out afterwards. We don't need to. We don't need to talk about that. Um, but the yeah, like you said, Ben, you even mentioned it, the destruction of society and the way we interact. This movie represents that in, the, in this trilogy of theme. Um, and then the movie, the movie was made in 1982, as we said. This was John Carpenter's first big budget movie, bigger budget movie. It was he had more time. He he he's he's quoted as saying he spent the most time on this movie, from the time he like started writing the the script started getting worked on to the time they finished it. Um, he worked with a person that he would later work with several times, and he had worked with several times before. Was his Dean Cundy? He was the director of photography for this movie, and he did The Thing. I mean, he did The Thing. He did Halloween, The Fog, and Escape from New York. They were friends back in college, and they kept working together for a long time. And one of the other best crew members, one of the most important people to the the movie, the one who brought in the idea of the creature looking like anything. Rob Forest, My man. Yes. Ben, I need you, tell us about Rob Bottin. Let us know about this man, this glorious creature of a individual. Rob Bottin is pretty much a five-year-old in an adult's body. And it's amazing. There's an incredible featurette on the thing, which lasts about an hour and a half long. And you watch through Way it. Way too long. And Way too long. And about half the people make you want to blow your brains out like us. <laughs> because they just drone on and on Mm -hmm. it's like the one of them was talking about being on a bus that broke down and you go and we're driving down the highway and there's lots of snow and (laughs) the bus we felt like it was going to start breaking down and then it broke down and then we wondered what are we going it's oh my god but then rob botin has the innocence of a five-year-old and he just loves making all these special effects. And he goes... He's such a nerd. He's, he's such, such a nerd. He is such a nerd. And, and he says, oh my god, I got to work with John Carpenter from Halloween. Oh, this is so amazing. It's... I love I love him. Just because the, he has so intern. much life the, and energy and passion in this project. Yeah. He worked himself into a hospital bed on this project. He did almost all of the effects himself. Um, yeah, he was, and he, came, he drew all of them too. He, he did drew, all the art he for drew it too. All of them. He did all the the concept art with the help of a comic book artist, mm-hmm. and it, the visual flares of this movie are very much influenced by Rob Bottin. Funnily enough, he originally met John Carpenter on the Fog, and they used him as I believe one of the ghost pirates. Yeah, he and, was one of the many masked creatures. Yes. And on this project, he was brought on to do the special effects. But somewhere along the way, he thought he was going to be used for a role. Because in The Fog, he was used for a role as well. So he's going around. He's like, yeah, guys, I'm going to be this character. And everyone around him's like, you can barely do your job as it is. What are you talking about? You don't have time to you be don't in have this time. film, you so man. He did ruffle some feathers, needless yeah. to say. I will but. say though he did he did start his career and the reason he got in this movie is where he met Dean Kearney, um, his friend John Carpenter's good friend and director friend on Rock and Roll High School, which is a movie 
that is so glorious. And if Ben, if you haven't seen it, we're doing a deep dive on this film because it, it is, it is incredible. I'm already excited. Have you seen Rock and Roll High School? I have not. Oh, you're in for it. All right. And yeah, he 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 brought the idea of the creature with no form, uh, no specific form. It was really his inspiration that tied together the creature of this movie and helped set the theme and the tone. And, uh, process of lining up the people to do the movie and the, one of the crucial decisions we had to make was on the special effects and um, whether or not to hire uh, what, what kind of an effects person to go with and what kind of a concept to go with and I chose Rob Bottin. Uh, I saw uh, Halloween and I instantly became a John Carpenter fan. Uh, he was, uh, you know, that film is just amazing. It amazed me. And uh, I had the, the fortune of, uh, of working on a picture, uh, which was a Roger Corman film, uh, Rock and Roll High School. I met Dean Cundy. He did an amazing job on Halloween. I was also a big fan of him as a cinematographer and director of photography. And uh, I begged him to introduce me to John Carpenter. You know, I said, I got to work with this guy. So I went in, I met John, and he was shooting The Fog. And I, you know, I said, you know what? Do you have any creepy kind of characters that, you know, are in this movie? I said, I'd love to play it. You know, you got anything like the guy with a mask in, in Halloween or whatever? He said, as a matter of fact, I do. You know, and um, actually just sort of burst in on this meeting, you know, and he's going, who's this guy? The Dean, right? And I'm like going, I'm your big fan, right? And, uh, you know, I asked him this question. Then he said, stand up. I thought he was going to say, and get out, right? You know, when I was hitting him up for this, uh, this part, you know. And uh, uh, he looked at me a second, he goes, you got the job, be there tomorrow. You know, you got to do this with the makeup, that, this. So I got to work with him and I was very happy and we had a good working relationship and really had a lot of similar uh, interests and things. And he said, guess what? He goes, I'm going to do a movie called The Thing, you know? And I said, you're kidding me, you're going to remake The Thing? And he said, yeah. He says, that's the idea. You know, and he says, I want you to make the thing. Right. And I went, oh, my God, this is fantastic. Well, and also you you have to take a look back to the background behind the movie, because this is based on the 1952 movie, as we already stated. But that was based on the 1938 short story. So 1952's movie um, is very much sanitized, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the, almost a complete departure from the book. <laughs> yeah, the the main character, the main antagonist, instead of taking the shape of other people, really, it's a giant vegetable. Yeah, like, it's, Frank, it's like a Frankenstein style monster. Yes, it's like a, a it's creeping a, toward you. It is literally like a Frankenstein celery monster. Yeah, it's not. It's not scary. So it's not to us. The abyss. The thing from the abyss, the abyss from, or the thing from space, whatever. The uh, thing from outer space. The thing from outer space is based on the 1938 short story, Who Goes There? Who Goes There is a 1938 short story uh, written by John W. Campbell. Uh, he was an editor of Astounding Science Fiction, and he's known as the forefather of Golden Age sci-fi. So think of the L. Ron Hubbard era of kind of schlocky science fiction stories, uh, which is everly evident in this short story, which is readily available online. 
Um, yeah, there's audio versions on YouTube. Yeah, who goes there? It's only about 40 pages. And it's not very good. I'm going to tell you something. It is. Yeah. It's bad. Like, it's objectively bad. Um, you can see a lot of inspiration from it in the movie. Just super quick synopsis. They find the alien in the snow in the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. They consider whether or not to thaw it. Because they're like, it could, you know, kill us. So they say, okay, we're going to thaw it because it has to be dead. Then they spend the next five pages insisting that it's dead. It's dead. It must be dead. Turns out it's not dead. Oh, my God. Oh, no. So the vast majority of the short story is them trying to figure out who is the thing and sort of figuring out what its motives are, how it moves around. Uh, The two scenes that really inspire the 1982 movie are finding the alien and the thought finding the alien mm-hmm. there's the blood tests they try and do and there's also the alien with the dogs yeah so Those, there are certain narrative beats that are definitely directly yeah. pulled to make sure they were they made sure they were in this movie which are approached in slightly different ways like in 1982's mm-hmm. the thing the blood test they try ends up getting screwed up before it even starts in the short story they do actually succeed in doing the initially planned drug the blood test but it ends up backfiring on them and doesn't help them at all regardless that short story ends where they figure out uh who is actually who actually is a thing by using the burning blood and out of a crew of about 30 something they kill 14 of their people, or Jesus 15 Christ. by the end. They literally just wow. bludgeon them all to death and electrocute them. Holy Satan. It's That's incredible. It moves very slowly. It's okay. very boring. It's very poorly written. If you want, yeah, I'm glad I didn't listen to it. <laughs> if you want an excuse for how poorly written it is, just look at the description of McCready in these stories, where Ooh. he is labeled as being bronze. Ooh. Well, okay, we have to remember, this came out in 1930-what? 1938. No, 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 no. There were multiple yeah, words in the dictionary you could use other than bronze. Just listen to this. I know, this. but hold on, go hold on. read something no, no, no. else from 1938, no, no, no. Ben. No, Matt, Matt, no. Charles, ben. Ben. Charles Dickens was already dead, okay? <laughs> better be, I mean, kind better of verbiage too. existed than moving from the smoke-blued background, McCready was a figure from some forgotten myth, a looming bronze statue that held life and walked. Later in that same paragraph. And he was brawn. <laughs> Hold on. And he was bronze. His great red bronze beard, the heavy hair that matched it. The gnarled, corded hands gripping, relaxing, gripping, relaxing on the table planks were bronze. Even the deep sunken eyes beneath heavy brows were bronzed. Man, I really That's feel... all one paragraph, Okay. Hold on, hold on. Let's move to page. I, fat. I can, I can envision him. No, no. no. Cast let, let, in let's move to page four, shall we? McCready's okay, great four. bronze beard gestured toward the thing oh. on the table. Wow. Or, or, or maybe. Oh, here, here's page five. If McCready was a man of bronze, Norris was all steel. We're, st- <laughs> we're still in the first five pages of the story. 
All right. Oh, my God. oh, here's page 13. One of the giant blowtorches used in warming the plane's engines was in his bronzed hands. <laughs> Later on the same page, there was a slight, tight smile on his lean, bronzed face. Ben. Chapter 8. I... Ben, Ben, all I have to say to you yeah. right now is, is cupping. <laughs> Blair moved restlessly around the small shack. His eyes jerked and quivered in vague, fleeting glances at the four men with him. Barkley, six feet tall and weighing over 190 pounds. McCready, a bronze giant of a man. Oh, here on page 24, we talk about the bronzed giant. We're still going. Oh, here on page 30, the bronze giant. Oh, oh, here he stood heavily and solid in bronzed immobility. And then we make one more reference to his bronze beard. How bronzy do you want it? <laughs> does he really say that in the, the short story? <laughs> he doesn't say how bronzy do you want it, but he does use bronze to describe him approximately 15 times in Jeez. the 39-page short story. He, does, he, does he not go like five pages without using the word bronzed? He does, but not very often. God, this dude's gayer than Rob Halford. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with it, but damn. Yeah. Watch, watch Hot for Muscle, the Judas Priest video, or Hot Rock. It's it. Wow. So, in all seriousness, though, there are some interesting aspects of the thing that aren't mm-hmm. translated to the movie. Yeah, which, these horror which themes. Which I think are... not No, not even necessarily horror themes. It's just small details about the alien that I think are kind of okay. cool. One of the concepts is that the thing in the short story they think can actually assume the form of anything it has absorbed. Not necessarily yeah. only if it absorbs something, it turns into that. It's that, oh, mm-hmm. it remembers what that is now, and it can turn into that whenever it wants to. So there's this concept I where... I really love that idea. Yeah, there's the concept... Where, well, completely changes the movie, honestly. Mm-hmm. And there's the idea that the thing can melt and sort of move around without being noticed, which is sort of alluded to, but not necessarily yeah. confirmed. There's, well, I mean, it kind of happens with the head. No, but I'm talking about literally it like melts into goo and then moves somewhere oh. and reforms. I mean, that'd be, that'd be really expensive to put on film, especially yeah, in 1982. Or it'd, or it'd <laughs> terrible. It'd make the movie worse. Um, yeah. All three. Yeah, so so ju- just some interesting um, notions like that. And apparently, it's really freaking smart, considering the creature tries to escape by creating an anti-gravity field to try and lift it into the air so it can fly to the United States. Wow. Well, I mean, in the, in the movie, a man manages to build a spaceship in like three days while inside a cabin, while displacing an unknown amount of snow nowhere. That's right. So this thing's got its shit together. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's 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 well it well it feels like it's a it's a creature acting on pure instinct. Yeah. Because we get a lot we get a little bit we get a lot more information in the movie that they add, where they show a alien spaceship crashing under Earth. Now Ben, I'm gonna throw an idea at you and let me know what you think about it. I like to think that the reason the creature is crashing is because the aliens that were on board got infected by the thing and were trying to run away. 
and so they cra- and they crashed their ship because they were getting killed by the thing. Well, if we're assuming that the alien in the short story is effectively the same, they actually answer that in the short story. Oh, really? Yeah, they they ponder that exact question, and to them, they feel that the alien that crashed on the ship that is its true form, because they see it moving. When it's moving, it's it looks like it's looking for something to take control of. As in, it's hmm. that naked form. Uh, what if that was just a, what if that was just like an amalgamation of memory forms, like it takes when it's transforming? The way they alluded to in the short story suggested okay. that that is the true form. So, okay. yeah, and then the the main concept is just world domination he just chose the wrong place to crash his plane pretty much yeah he he he, if he had crashed anywhere else he would have been a lot better off yes um he would have been better off in the ocean uh yeah the the creature is really smart but it's a very single-minded thing all it knows is survive that's it and that that's what almost what's more terrifying about it is that it's very direct it's unlike the thing in alien which is a contemporary to this movie that 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 creature had goals. It had a thought process. This creature just tries to go unnoticed. It's really comfortable. It's really fine. Like its ultimate goal was just to chill in that place until everyone left. You know, if it, if it had gone its way, nothing would have changed. And that's another thing you actually see in the short story where, mm-hmm. cause they have this whole crisis almost where they go, well, I mean, why isn't the thing just attacking us? Why would it? And they say, well, maybe it's because we have the thing outnumbered. There's only one of the thing in, in all of us. And they say, well, maybe because we don't know who's the thing. Maybe all of us except for one person are the thing. Mm-hmm. And they theorize that the thing is directly non-confrontational. So it, yeah. even if there's only one person left, it will bide its time and It'll just wait, wait it, plays it the out. Long game. Well, that's and they they have that moment in the movie when they're burning the corpses, and before and they go and find out what happened with the blood. There, they they there's a quote from McCready where he here he's like holding the flamethrower up and he's like, "None of you are stopping me from burning this, so that means not all of you are the bad guys. That only means some of you are, and we're gonna find out who it is." And then they run back inside and all the blood's been sabotaged. Yep. By a saboteur. Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. It takes us over, and it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gotta listen to Gary. He can beat one of those things. So, so yeah, so that that takes us from the inspiration to the movie, and that actually really covers a lot of the basic concepts that are addressed in 
the movie The Thing. In the movie The Thing, a group of Arctic uh, investigators, I don't know, they're kind of just chilling up there in the Arctic at a facility, looking at stuff. There is a group of Norwegians shittily trying to shoot a dog. The man with the worst aim in the galaxy, and he has worse aim than Star Trooper, and then he throws a grenade at their own helicopter. Hold on, have you ever have you ever tried shooting a dog with a sniper rifle that's running away from you while you're in the middle of the Arctic in a plane that's moving around? No, I would have just tried to land and scared into a corner and shot it while it was sitting in front of us. I, would I wouldn't have been an idiot and just try and shoot it from from the from the helicopter. I would have like try to land and crush the dog and shoot it up close and then burn it to death. I would have used a propeller blade and blown everything up. You would have died too. Yeah, but it would have looked awesome. It would have. There's actually I heard a theory that the the reason they were missing and the reason they were trying not to hit it was they were actually infected too, and that's why they blew up the helicopter so they guys wouldn't have a second way to get out. And it was all set up to try to get them to trust the dog and make them think they were crazy. But if that's, the, actually the, if that's the case, why couldn't they have just had one of the guys show up and go, oh my god, all my friends are dead. Then there would be because two it's, things. It's not smart enough. <laughs> ben, ben, this movie doesn't have enough intelligence in it that a bunch of Arctic researchers who all clearly have like doctorates to some extent and are like very qualified wouldn't use a buddy system. It's very easy to beat this creature, and if we apply too much logic to this film, it crumbles down. You get why some people didn't like it in the 80s, because they couldn't appreciate it for the nature of what these type of horror films are. They they have to strip back a certain layer of logic and and allow you to suspend your disbelief when you really enjoy them and enjoy the themes that they have. All right. So, like many other movies that John Carpenter has done, this movie had a lot of horror tropes that eventually got used. The way the stalking horror and like creature in the tentacles really show up in a lot of other horror movies. Um, so Ben, what, let's just say, what do you think about the basics of the movie? What do you think about it? What do you think about the story? Are there any moments that you really want to talk on now? Or do we just want to move on to what, what the critics thought about it when it came out? I mean, I, I feel like, I, I feel like the movie in general is just really well put together. I feel like the pacing is great. I feel like, in general, buddy system aside, if we're taking the buddy system and moving it, that's the that's the film's one gimme. Buddy system aside, I feel like it's well thought out. I, I don't know. How, how, do you, how do you think that the film used different horror tropes to its advantage or potentially disadvantage? I think it. I think it used them really well. It. Uh, it didn't try to throw the the creature at your face. It kept it ambiguous. I think the best thing about horror, and when you look at the psychology of horror and why people are so scared of the dark, is we're scared of things we don't know. And a big problem with a lot of modern horror movies, especially in the trailers, the creature is thrown right at your face. You know exactly what you're facing. You know what it looks like, and to some extent, you usually know how it operates. And that just strips back all the terror. And then it just becomes about shock. And about, like, the, the not, not being scared of the creature, just being, like, scared of it popping up and making a loud noise. Like, John Carpenter said he could scare anybody with a reel of white film and a loud popping noise, and it would scare everyone in the theater anytime. And it's true. And that's what a lot of horror movies rely on now. This movie relied very much like Westerns and some of those Western themes, and especially in Howard Hawks where the action is just is driven and the story is driven 
by the characters just doing things. They're just like doing stuff. They're just being people and reacting and, and corresponding in the following action. And you find out the story and the information through them. And unlike a lot of other horror movies in modern culture, which misuse these ideas, they just chuck all the information at you in exposition. And this movie kind of addresses that in a really interesting and really intelligently written way. I forgot the name of the writer, but he was a great guy. Do you know who didn't think it was intelligently written? Oh, Ben, who? Pretty much everyone in 1982. In 1982, and it's loved now. It's jerked off now. Yeah, but, you know, deciding to release this movie immediately after the cultural phenomenon that is E.T. was probably not the biggest stroke of genius. And, and you know, you really have to think about this. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, what, what a really heartwarming movie. All right, guys, now let's get out the chainsaws. We're going we're gonna to carve E.T. up. It's... I don't know who yeah, really they, thought that was a good idea. It seemed like it was almost destined to fail. Yeah, it was a it was a terrible idea. In the news, there the John Carpenter was called a pornographer of violence. This movie was lambasted for being over the top, gross, sick, disgusting, inappropriate. That kids shouldn't see it. Um, the uh, Roger Ebert. Did I get it, Ben? No, you didn't. It's Roger Ebert. This guy, in 1982, he wrote in the opening paragraph of his thing, The Thing is a great barf bag movie. All right, but is it any good? I found it disappointing for two reasons. The superficial characterizations and the implausible behaviors of the scientists on that icy outpost. And he goes on to talk about how boring some of the characterization is, how... John Carpenter has never been good at making characters and how the movie and the characters just don't make sense. They do things that are stupid. I think he actually addresses the buddy system in his review. Um, Now, that's an interesting point. What do you think about the characters? Do you like them? Yeah, I like them. Some of them don't really matter. Um, And honestly, they're not all very memorable. But most other humans aren't memorable. That's like the thing about the characters in this movie is they're not they're not all significant people because the majority of the world is in full of significant people. That does put a lot of weight on Kurt Russell and make him like the guy, which was partly because they when they did the costume everyone looked the same and it would have been kind of awkward um to make so they had to make him more important. The characters in this movie have the characteristic of feeling really natural. It really does feel like you're just plopped in on their life. And you're just getting a slice of it. Because life isn't full of people explaining who each other is. They don't. Everyone doesn't call each other by their first names all the time. You know, the characters barely call each other by their first names because they just know each other. They don't need to be like, hello, Ben. How are you today, Benjamin Tucker? Oh, hey, I'm are doing you great. Doing oh, oh, this is just an example. Never mind. No, how are you doing? <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and the, the characters don't do that because people don't do that. And so sometimes you can feel like a character doesn't get enough characterization. But I feel like the characters are so well actualized, you don't need to get like a big introduction. It's like if you take out all the introductions that some of uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's characters get, you know who that guy is in like 15 minutes. Like in Phantom Thread, despite what you think about that movie, you know who that character is without him having to explain who he is. You just watch him be himself. 
I, I, I think something that's pretty depressing is mm-hmm. that this movie is criticized for having superficial characterizations. Whereas you look with movies now today, and if there were more movies with characters like this, we'd be complimenting I mean, there have them been. for how... I mean, like, the, the good movies that have come out, like, movies like Green Room have a lot of characters like this movie, where it's just people. Well, and true. And things but happen for, to those for people. For this sort of movie, it's few and far true. between nowadays. If you want to look at another negative review, uh, I saw that you quoted Vincent Canby uh, right yeah, when the movie came out. Yeah, he was in the out. New York Times. Uh, and in the New York Times, he said... <clears throat> The Thing is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that is fun as neither one thing or the other. Sometimes it looks as if it's aspired to be the quintessential moron movie of the 80s, a virtually storyless feature composed of lots of laboratory-concocted special effects where the actors used merely as props to be hacked, slashed, disemboweled, and decapitated, finally to be eaten and then regurgitated as, guess what, more laboratory-concocted special effects. Oh my goodness. I mean, I don't he's like not that. wrong. I ain't wrong. <laughs> that's the... I work for the New York Times. Yeah, you do, buddy. You actually, that's how I imagined his voice when I read that uh, that review. Like, I remember, like, I just, like, you know, the thing is a foolish, depressing over... Like, it sounds just like some snooty dick reading, writing that. And then he goes on to talk about how it was a travesty that this movie came out right after E.T. And how it's disrespectful to the audience. Um, and a lot of people thought that way. They really felt this movie was disrespectful to the culture. They blamed John Carpenter personally. And they lambasted him as a villain for all of this like subtext and ruining culture and doing these really inappropriate things. But we move on and we get to the modern day. And people have spent time looking back at this movie, thinking about it and realizing that it's incredible. You know, we the reason we haven't gone into the nitty gritty of this whole movie is because everyone has talked about it to the nitty gritty. When you try to look up this movie, there's a lot of sources, but it's one of those films that is so important that it can be discussed and analyzed by each person differently because it addresses what makes you so afraid about humanity, which really has every person every person interpreting it and feeling it in a different way. But it's so human that everyone can connect with it. Now that it's been popular, it's become a cult classic. It's in the leagues of many other movies like Blade Runner or Constantine, which were just told were terrible flops. Everyone hated them. And now they're just legendary. At least Constantine is to me. I love that movie. Keanu Reeves, you're my guy. But Ben, what are some of your other favorite movies that have had a similar experience like John Carpenter's film did, where it just kind of wasn't received at the time. It wasn't ready. And then the world eventually cur- turned to understand it. Um, uh, probably 2000s Ready to Rumble. Um, <laughs> it's a really intelligent movie. It's really well thought out. The, um, the characters are just really strong. Um, and honestly, it's an inspirational movie. And I know that when it came out, there were a lot of people who were decrying it, uh, saying that was a, a travesty of a film. But I think... In time, it's really held up as one of the most uh, important pieces of American um, visual media just as a whole. Maybe just of American-based media that's ever been created. So, Any other favorite cult classics that we haven't mentioned? No. Like Cube? No, that's your only no. movie? You love that that's movie? That's the only one. 
That's the only one. So do you have any final thoughts about this movie, about this film? I have some last type of kind of things to, to round it up about John Carpenter himself, but what are your kind of final thoughts on the thing and what it means to the trilogy going forward? Well, trilogy going forward, I've only seen one of the three, so I'm not too sure about that. I, I just think that this is about as solid as a horror movie can get everything lines up so well and this movie holds up insatiably amazing because of the use of special effects mm-hmm. use of practical effects. and they're yeah i think without rob botine on this film you cannot mm-hmm. compliment him enough i think it's his film just as much as it's john carpenter's just like uh in in nightmare on elm street that's the movie's just as much robert england's as it is Wes craven's I think if we're talking the original Nightmare on Elm Street, I would say that this movie is more important with Rob Bottin than the original Nightmare on Elm Street is with Robert England. Okay, yeah, I think I agree once you get, I, I think, think once you get through the series, I, I think once you get through the Nightmare on Elm Street series in general, Robert England takes more of a focus. But I think for that first movie, could swapped him out with a couple people, wouldn't have been as good, but we've still made its mark. This movie. Sure. The visuals are so stunning, and even today when I watch it, having watched it multiple times, there's so moments where I go, how did they do that? Or I go, wow, that's graphic. It's really affecting. Everything about it is just well done. Yeah, And I I, I, I liked it, and I gave it a solid 2 out of 10. Wow. So, Ben, what do you actually rate this movie? I'm actually curious on a scale of 1 to 10. Where do you put it? Probably like a 9, yeah. if I had to guess. I give it Just like an eight point five. Great quality, yeah. I love it. It's good. It's really quality. Uh, it's good horror. Um, and this movie was though very impactful to John Carpenter because as this trilogy continues, we got two more movies to talk about. We got a lot of years of John Carpenter's career to look at as we move forward. And this movie, with that critical response, the box office response kind of ended John Carpenter's studio days. And we never really got to see John Carpenter kind of explode into this yeah, crazy John horror Carpenter's, maniac. John Carpenter's career seems to be pre-thing and post-thing. Yep. And post-thing is a lot less impressive for the most part. Yeah. Than pre-thing. Or, or let me rephrase that. It's less... It's less stellar and revolutionary. He very much seems like a guy who... Once he fell off a bit, he completely just went, well, what can you do? Yeah, Maybe I mean, he needed to do more acid. John, John Carpenter's problem was that John Carpenter already happened. What, what made John Carpenter so incredible at his time was he was this budget, low-budget, incredible filmmaker who could take these small ideas and take these characters and make something really entertaining with it and make it look really good because he had such constraints that he, it, his level of perfection made it look incredible. But then when you move forward in big budget movies and people have learned to adapt your style and borrow from you, you become kind of just run of the mill and then you're just you making you movies. And I think that actually goes into the to the, uh, this quote about that John Carpenter said. He's talking about the way that his movies are going to impact the world and what he wants everyone to think about him in the future and why he, t- he made an effort to make indie movies on low budgets that so he could have full creative control. That's what he wants. 
He wants full creative. He wants to Hulk Hogan this. He wants to write, direct, produce, and do the music. That's what he wants, and that's what he gets in these next two movies. And this was his last chance working with like a big group, and it flopped. But to John Carpenter, this all is a really important message that I really connect with, which is this. One day I will be gone from this earth, and I want at least somebody in the future to look at my movies and realize they're mine. They may be screwed up, you may not like them, but they're my movies. That's a quote from John Carpenter, and that's how he feels about these films. That's why it's John Carpenter's The Thing. He has an emphatic impression and an emphatic desire to make and himself fully realized and shown on film. Because that's how he can express himself. And he does in his music like he does now. That he's old and tours with his son and his grandson. Jamming it out on stage. Selling out crowds. Being a rock star. <laughs> what a nerd. He is. He's a huge music nerd. It's great. <laughs> and do you have any... Any other passing comments you wanna you wanna make uh, I about do, the thing, about the object, not about the about th- the who's it's, the I, what's it's. I do want to mention something about John Carpenter. So in recent times, he's come back to directing and he's done some TV. And he did an episode of Masters of Horror on Showtime in 2005, and they brought him back for the second season. And I found out. I never I've never seen this, but I read about. It. I'm gonna watch it and talk about it next time. In the second season of Masters of Horror, he directed an episode entitled Pro-Life about a young girl who was raped and impregnated by demons and wants to have an abortion, but whose efforts are halted by her religious fanatic gun-toting father and her three brothers. I just feel like that's, uh, that's relevant to our culture. And I thought it was really funny because that movie, that sounds ridiculous, especially for 2005 and it, or 2006. And it really shows John Carpenter's opinions of the world. Arguably more interesting, and Matt, I actually just confirmed that this is still in play, Oh, um, is that John Carpenter is returning to the Halloween franchise Woo-hoo! for 2018's Halloween. The second um, remake. Yeah, I actually read at my last job a bit of the script for that. Mm-hmm. Can you talk uh, about that? I mean, technically, not who's going to freaking sue me. No, I mean, it's standard. That's literally what you'd expect from a slasher movie. Nothing great, nothing awful. We're going to get sued it's... for defamation. Um, On that note, on that wild, wild statement, <laughs> on that exclusive pew, 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 pew. from here, we are going to bid you adieu for today. Next week... On the Festival of Findings, we are going to take a deep dive. Deep. Give you some excellent bonus commentary for The Thing. Uh, we are going to uh, set it up so you'll be able to play our audio right alongside the movie in case you've seen it a couple times and you're looking for some extra pals to watch along with you. We'll yep. have a bunch of trivia, a bunch of different facts, a bunch of different weird commentary, and we'll probably argue with ourselves over the movie. Um, so be sure to tune in for that. It could not be any worse than this was. Yeah, if you, if you like us enough to have us talk over a movie you want to watch... We're here for you. We'll try to make it entertaining. We'll bring you some tidbits. We'll be like those live notes that pop up on Disney movies in the 2000s where it's like, hey, Dumbledore's name is Albus Dumbledore. 
Holy shit. Uh, we'll be there to give you all of those tropey notes that you probably have already noticed. But we'll talk about them because we, we can. Are, we are the Statler and Waldorf of your lives. Do not forget that. We will read you the entire IMDb trivia page. We're coming. We are gonna, we're coming. We're going to go through every single one. Everyone. Every single one. Beat by beat in that movie. You're not going to have a moment of audio from that film that isn't just us. So before we go, I'd like to take this moment to thank our lovely, lovely supporters on Patreon. Uh, we just surpassed uh, about $4,000 a month. You guys are awesome. I uh, could not thank you enough for all the support you guys have given us. Uh, our yep. merch page keeping us alive that's right uh, we we live uh, for the Patreon uh, we just released two new t-shirts uh, which yep. are on there uh, we are available on Twitter at Festive Findings uh, we're available on SoundCloud at SoundCloud.com slash Festival of Findings my name is Benjamin Tucker I can be found at B Tucker Torch on the Twitter machine he is Matt he is available on Twitter machine at Dr. Gore Wizard and damn right that's right he's been him I've been me and we will see you next week for some live commentary of the who's it the what's it the thing I bet there's some sweet techno music playing right now John Carpenter loves some sweet synthy techno. Good night, everybody. An insurance investigator begins discovering that it, that the impact a horror writer's books One have on his fans. Tip of the tongue. Every time you swish those ice cubes <laughs> around, it's going to get included in the end, you know. I hope so. Just over the music. I'm just saying, Matt, we're over 10 minutes in. All right, let's get through this. Come on.